Section 41 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Dennis Sayers. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book Twelve containing the same individual time with the former. Chapter 1. Showing what is to be deemed plagiarism in a modern author, and what is to be considered as lawful prize. The learned reader must have observed that, in the course of this mighty work, I have often translated passages out of the best ancient authors, without quoting the original or without taking the least notice of the book from whence they were borrowed. This conduct in writing is placed in a very proper light by the ingenious Abbe Bagnier. In his preface to his Mythology, a work of great erudition and of equal judgment, it will be easy, says he, for the reader to observe that I have frequently had greater regard to him than to my own reputation, for an author certainly pays him a considerable compliment when, for his sake, he suppresses learned quotations that come in his way, and which would have cost him but the bare trouble of transcribing. To fill up a work with these scraps may indeed be considered as a downright cheat on the learned world, who are by such means imposed upon to buy a second time, in fragments or by retail, what they have already in gross, if not in their memories, upon their shelves, and it is still more cruel upon the illiterate, who are drawn in to pay for what is of no manner of use to them. A writer who intermixes great quantity of Greek and Latin with his works, deals by the ladies and fine gentlemen in the same paltry manner with which they are treated by the auctioneers, who often endeavour so to confound and mix up their lots, that in order to purchase the commodity you want, you are obliged at the same time to purchase that which will do you no service. And yet, as there is no conduct so fair and disinterested, but that it may be misunderstood by ignorance, and misrepresented by malice, I have been sometimes tempted to preserve my own reputation at the expense of my reader, and to transcribe the original, or at least to quote chapter and verse, whenever I have made use either of the thought or expression of another. I am indeed in some doubt that I have often suffered by the contrary method, and that by suppressing the original author's name I have been rather suspected of plagiarism than reputed to act from the amiable motive assigned by that justly celebrated Frenchman. Now, to obviate all such imputations for the future, 
I do here confess and justify the fact. The ancients may be considered as a rich common, where every person who hath the smallest tenement in Parnassus hath a free right to fatten his muse, or, to place it in a clearer light, we moderns are to the ancients what the poor are to the rich. By the poor, here I mean that large and venerable body, which in English we call the mob. Now, whoever hath had the honour to be admitted to any degree of intimacy with this mob, must well know that it is one of their established maxims to plunder and pillage their rich neighbours without any reluctance, and that this is held to be neither sin nor shame among them. And so, constantly, do they abide and act by this maxim, that in every parish, almost, in the kingdom, there is a kind of confederacy ever carrying on against a certain person of opulence called the squire, whose property is considered as free booty by all his poor neighbours, who, as they conclude, that there is no manner of guilt in such depredations, look upon it as a point of honour and moral obligation to conceal, and to preserve each other from punishment on all such occasions. In like manner are the ancients, such as Homer, Virgil, Horace, Cicero, and the rest, to be esteemed among us writers, as so many wealthy squires, from whom we, the poor of Parnassus, claim an immemorial custom of taking whatever we can come at. This liberty I demand, and this I am as ready to allow again to my poor neighbours in their turn. All I profess, and all I require of my brethren, is to maintain the same strict honesty among ourselves, which the mob show to one another. To steal from one another is indeed highly criminal, and indecent, for this may be strictly styled defrauding the poor, sometimes perhaps those who are poorer than ourselves, or, to set it under the most opprobrious colours, robbing the spittle. Since, therefore, upon the strictest examination my own conscience cannot lay any such pitiful theft to my charge, I am contented to plead guilty to the former accusation, nor shall I ever scruple to take to myself any passage which I shall find in an ancient author to my purpose, without setting down the name of the author from whence it was taken. Nay, I absolutely claim a property in all such sentiments, the moment they are transcribed into my writings, and I expect all readers henceforwards to regard them as purely and entirely 
my own. This claim, however, I desire to be allowed me only, on condition that I preserve strict honesty towards my poor brethren, from whom, if ever I borrow any of that little of which they are possessed, I shall never fail to put their mark upon it, that it may be at all times ready to be restored to the rightful owner. The omission of this was highly blamable in one Mr. Moore, who, having formerly borrowed some lines of Pope and company, took the liberty to transcribe six of them into his play of the rival modes. Mr. Pope, however, very luckily found them in the said play, and laying violent hands on his own property, transferred it back again into his own works, and for a further punishment, imprisoned the said Moore in the loathsome dungeon of the Dunciad, where his unhappy memory now remains, and eternally will remain, as a proper punishment for such his unjust dealings in the poetical trade. CHAPTER Two, IN WHICH, THOUGH THE SQUIRE DOTH NOT FIND HIS DAUGHTER, SOMETHING IS FOUND WHICH PUTS AN END TO HIS PURSUIT. THE HISTORY NOW RETURNS TO THE INN AT UPTON, WHENCE WE SHALL FIRST TRACE THE FOOTSTEPS OF SQUIRE WESTERN, FOR, AS HE WILL SOON ARRIVE AT AN END OF HIS JOURNEY, we shall have then full leisure to attend our hero. The reader may be pleased to remember that the said squire departed from the inn in great fury, and in that fury he pursued his daughter. The hostler, having informed him that she had crossed the Severn, he likewise passed that river with his equipage and rode full speed, vowing the utmost vengeance against poor Sophia, if he should but overtake her. He had not gone far before he arrived at a crossway. Here he called a short council of war, in which, after hearing different opinions, he at last gave the direction of his pursuit to fortune, and struck directly into the Worcester Road. In this road he proceeded about two miles, when he began to bemoan himself most bitterly, frequently crying out, What pity is it! Sure never was so unlucky a dog as myself! And then burst forth a volley of oaths and execrations. The parson attempted to administer comfort to him on this occasion. "'Sorrow not, sir,' says he, "'like those without hope. Howbeit we have not yet been able to overtake, young madam, we may account it some good fortune, that we have hitherto traced her course aright. Peradventure she will soon be fatigued with her journey, and will tarry in some inn, in order to renovate her corporeal functions, 
and in that case, in all moral certainty, you will very briefly be compos voti. Bah, damned slut, answered the squire. I am lamenting the loss of so fine a morning for hunting. It is confounded hard to lose one of the best scenting days, in all appearance, which hath been this season, and especially after so long a frost. Whether fortune, who now and then shows some compassion in her wantonous tricks, might not take pity of the squire, and, as she had determined not to let him overtake his daughter, might not resolve to make him amends some other way, I will not assert. But he had hardly uttered the words just before commemorated, and two or three oaths at their heels, when a pack of hounds began to open their melodious throats at a small distance from them, which the squire's horse and his rider, both perceiving, both immediately pricked up their ears, and the squire crying, She's gone, she's gone, damned me if she is not gone, instantly clapped his spurs to the beast, who little needed it, having indeed the same inclination with his master, and now the whole company, crossing into a cornfield, rode directly towards the hounds, with much hallowing and whooping, while the poor parson, blessing himself, brought up the rear. Thus Fable reports that the fair Grimalkin, whom Venus, at the desire of a passionate lover, converted from a cat into a fine woman, no sooner perceived a mouse than, mindful of her former sport, and still retaining her pristine nature, she leaped from the bed of her husband to pursue the little animal. What are we to understand by this? Not that the bride was displeased with the embraces of her amorous bridegroom, for, though some have remarked that cats are subject to ingratitude, yet women and cats, too, will be pleased and purr on certain occasions. The truth is, as the sagacious Sir Roger Lestrange observes in his deep reflections, that if we shut nature out at the door, she will come in at the window, and that puss through a madam will be a mouser still. In the same manner, we are not to arraign the squire of any want of love for his daughter, for in reality he had a great deal. We are only to consider that he was a squire and a sportsman, and then we may apply the fable to him and the judicious reflections likewise. The hounds ran very hard, as it is called, and the squire pursued over hedge and ditch with all his usual vociferation and alacrity, and with all his usual pleasure, nor did the thoughts of Sophia ever once intrude themselves to allay the satisfaction he enjoyed in the chase, which, he said, 
was one of the finest he ever saw, and which he swore was very well worth going fifty miles for. As the squire forgot his daughter, the servants, we may easily believe, forgot their mistress, and the parson, after having expressed much astonishment in Latin, to himself, at length likewise abandoned all farther thoughts of the young lady, and jogging on at a distance behind, began to meditate a portion of doctrine for the ensuing Sunday. The squire, who owned the hounds, was highly pleased with the arrival of his brother squire and sportsman, for all men approve merit in their own way, and no man was ever more expert in the field than Mr. Western, nor did any other better know how to encourage the dogs with his voice, and to animate the hunt with his holla. Sportsmen in the warmth of a chase are too much engaged to attend to any manner of ceremony, nay, even to the offices of humanity. For if any of them meet with an accident by tumbling into a ditch, or into a river, the rest pass on regardless, and generally leave him to his fate. During this time, therefore, the two squires, though often close to each other, interchanged not a single word. The master of the hunt, however, often saw and approved the great judgment of the stranger in drawing the dogs when they were at a fault, and hence conceived a very high opinion of his understanding, as the number of his attendants inspired no small reverence to his quality. As soon, therefore, as the sport was ended by the death of the little animal which had occasioned it, the two squires met, and in all squire-like greeting saluted each other. The conversation was entertaining enough, and what we may perhaps relate in an appendix, or on some other occasion, but as it nowise concerns this history, we cannot prevail on ourselves to give it a place here. It concluded with a second chase, and that with an invitation to dinner. This being accepted, was followed by a hearty bout of drinking, which ended in as hearty a nap on the part of Squire Western. Our squire was by no means a match, either for his host or for Parson Supple, at his cups that evening, for which the violent fatigue of mind, as well as body, that he had undergone, may very well account, without the least derogation from his honour. He was indeed, according to the vulgar phrase, whistle drunk, for before he had swallowed the third bottle, he became so entirely overpowered, that though he was not carried off to bed till long after, the parson considered him as absent, and having acquainted the other squire with all relating to Sophia, he obtained his promise of seconding those arguments which he intended to urge the next morning for Mr. Western's return. No sooner, therefore, had the good squire shaken off his evening, 
and began to call for his morning draught, and to summon his horses in order to renew his pursuit, then Mr. Supple began his dissuasives, which the host so strongly seconded that they at length prevailed, and Mr. Western agreed to return home, being principally moved by one argument, viz., that he knew not which way to go, and might probably be riding farther from his daughter instead of towards her. He then took leave of his brother sportsman, and expressing great joy that the frost was broken, which might perhaps be no small motive to his hastening home, set forwards, or rather backwards, for Somersetshire, but not before he had first dispatched part of his retinue in quest of his daughter, after whom he likewise sent a volley of the most bitter execrations which he could invent. CHAPTER Three, THE DEPARTURE OF JONES FROM UPTON, WITH WHAT PASSED BETWEEN HIM AND PARTRIDGE ON THE ROAD. At length we are once more come to our hero, and, to say truth, we have been obliged to part with him so long that, considering the condition in which we left him, I apprehend many of our readers have concluded we intended to abandon him for ever. He being at present in that situation in which prudent people usually desist from inquiring any farther after their friends, lest they should be shot by hearing such friends had hanged themselves. But, in reality, if we have not all the virtues, I will boldly say, neither have we all the vices of a prudent character, and though it is not easy to conceive circumstances much more miserable than those of poor Jones at present, we shall return to him, and attend upon him, with the same diligence as if he was wantoning in the brightest beams of fortune. Mr. Jones, then, and his companion Partridge, left the inn a few minutes after the departure of Squire Western, and pursued the same road on foot, for the hostler told them that no horses were by any means to be, at that time, procured at Upton. On they marched with heavy hearts, for, though their disquiet proceeded from very different reasons, yet displeased they were both. And if Jones sighed bitterly, Partridge grunted altogether as sadly at every step. When they came to the crossroads where the squire had stopped to take counsel, Jones stopped likewise, and, turning to Partridge, asked his opinion which track they should pursue. "'Ah, sir,' answered Partridge, "'I wish your honour would follow my advice.' "'Why should I not?' replied Jones. "'For it is now indifferent to me whither I go, "'or what becomes of me.' "'My advice, then,' said Partridge, "'is that you immediately face about and return home. "'For who that hath such a home to return to as your honour "'would travel thus about the country,' 
like a vagabond. I ask pardon, said vox e a sola reperta est. Alas, cries Jones, I have no home to return to, but if my friend, my father, would receive me, could I bear the country from which Sophia is flown? Cruel Sophia, cruel! No, let me blame myself. No, let me blame thee. Damnation seize thee, fool, blockhead! Thou hast undone me, and I will tear thy soul from thy body. At which words he laid violent hands on the collar of poor Partridge, and shook him more heartily than an ague-fit, or his own fears had ever done before. Partridge fell trembling on his knees, and begged for mercy, vowing he had meant no harm, when Jones, after staring wildly on him for a moment, quitted his hold, and discharged a rage on himself, that, had it fallen on the other, would certainly have put an end to his being, which indeed the very apprehension of it had almost effected. We would bestow some pains here in minutely describing all the mad pranks which Jones played on this occasion, could we be well assured that the reader would take the same pains in perusing them. But as we are apprehensive that, after all the labor which we should employ in painting this scene, the said reader would be very apt to skip it entirely over. We have saved ourselves that trouble. To say the truth, we have, from this reason alone, often done great violence to the luxuriance of our genius, and have left many excellent descriptions out of our work, which would otherwise have been in it. And this suspicion, to be honest, arises, as is generally the case, from our own wicked heart. For we have ourselves been very often most horridly given to jumping, as we have run through the pages of voluminous historians. Suffice it then simply to say that Jones, after having played the part of a madman for many minutes, came, by degrees, to himself, which no sooner happened than, turning to Partridge, he very earnestly begged his pardon for the attack he had made on him in the violence of his passion, but concluded by desiring him never to mention his return again, for he was resolved never to see that country any more. Partridge easily forgave and faithfully promised to obey the injunction now laid upon him. And then Jones very briskly cried out, Since it is absolutely impossible for me to pursue any farther the steps of my angel, I will pursue those of glory. Come on, my brave lad, now for the army. It is a glorious cause, and I would willingly sacrifice my life in it, even though it was worth my preserving. And so saying, he immediately struck into the different road from that which the squire had taken, and, 
by mere chance, pursued the very same through which Sophia had before passed. Our travellers now marched a full mile, without speaking a syllable to each other, though Jones, indeed, muttered many things to himself. As to Partridge, he was profoundly silent, for he was not, perhaps, perfectly recovered from his former fright. Besides, he had apprehensions of provoking his friend to a second fit of wrath, especially as he now began to entertain a conceit, which may not, perhaps, create any great wonder in the reader. In short, he began now to suspect that Jones was absolutely out of his senses. At length, Jones, being weary of soliloquy, addressed himself to his companion, and blamed him for his taciturnity, for which the poor man very honestly accounted from his fear of giving offence. And now this fear being pretty well removed, by the most absolute promises of indemnity, Partridge again took the bridle from his tongue, which perhaps rejoiced no less at regaining its liberty than a young colt, when the bridle is slipped from his neck, and he is turned loose into the pastures. As Partridge was inhibited from that topic which would have first suggested itself, he fell upon that which was the next uppermost in his mind, namely, the man of the hill. Certainly, sir, says he, that could never be a man who dresses himself and lives after such a strange manner, and so unlike other folks. Besides, his diet, as the old woman told me, is chiefly upon herbs which is a fitter food for a horse than a Christian. Nay, landlord at Upton says that the neighbours thereabouts have very fearful notions about him. It runs strangely in my head that it must have been some spirit who perhaps might be sent to forewarn us, and who knows but all that manner which he told us of his going to fight and of his being taken prisoner, and of the great danger he was in of being hanged, might be intended as a warning to us, considering what we are going about. Besides, I dreamt of nothing all last night but of fighting, and methought the blood ran out of my nose as liquor out of a tap. Indeed, sir, Infandum Regina Jubes Renovare Dolorum. Thy story, Partridge, answered Jones, is almost as ill-applied as thy Latin. Nothing can be more likely to happen than death to men who go into battle. Perhaps we shall both fall in it, and what then? What then? replied Partridge. Why, then there is an end of us, is there not? When I am gone, all is over with me. What matters the cause to me, or who gets the victory if I am killed? I shall never enjoy any advantage from it. What are all the ringing of bells and bonfires to one that is six foot underground? There will be an end of poor Partridge. 
and an end of poor partridge cries jones there must be one time or another if you love latin i will repeat you some fine verses out of horace which would inspire courage into a coward dulce et dictorum es pro patria mori mors et fugagem persequitur virum nec parsit imbellis juvenite pope litibus domidice tergo i wish you would construe them cries partridge for horace is a hard author and i cannot understand as you repeat them i will repeat you a bad imitation or rather paraphrase of my own for i am but an indifferent poet who would not die in his dear country's cause since if base fear his dastard step withdraws from death he cannot fly one common grave receives at last the coward and the brave that's very certain cries partridge ay sure mors omnibus communis but there is a great difference between dying in one's bed a great many years hence like a good christian with all our friends crying about us and being shot to-day or to-morrow like a mad dog or perhaps hacked up in twenty pieces with the sword and that too before we have repented of all our sins o lord have mercy upon us to be sure the soldiers are a wicked kind of people i never loved to have anything to do with them i could hardly bring myself ever to look upon them as christians there is nothing but cursing and swearing among them i wish your honour would repent i heartily wish you would repent before it is too late and not think of going among them evil communication corrupts good manners that is my principal reason for as for that matter i am no more afraid than another man not i as to matter of that i know all human flesh must die but yet a man may live many years for all that why i am a middle-aged man now and yet i may live a great number of years i have read of several who have lived to be above a hundred and some a great deal above a hundred not that i hope i mean that i promise myself to live to any such age as that neither but if it be only to eighty or ninety heaven be praised that is a great ways off yet and i am not afraid of dying then no more than another man but surely to tempt death before a man's time is come seems to me downright wickedness and presumption besides if it was to do any good indeed but let the cause be what it will what mighty matter of good can two people do and for my part i understand nothing of it i never fired off a gun above ten times in my life and then it was not charged with bullets and for the sword i never learned to fence and know nothing of the matter and then there are those cannons which certainly it must be thought the highest presumption to go in the way of and 
nobody but a madman, I ask pardon, upon my soul I meant no harm, I beg that I may not throw your honour into another passion. Be under no apprehension, Partridge, cries Jones, I am now so well convinced of thy cowardice, that thou couldst not provoke me on any account. Your honour, answered he, they call me a coward, or anything else you please. If loving to sleep in a whole skin makes a man a coward, non immunis ab illis malis sumus. I never read in my grammar that a man can't be a good man without fighting. Vir bonus est quis? Qui consulta patrum, que leges jura que servat. Not a word of fighting, and I am sure that the scripture is so much against it, that a man shall never persuade me he is a good Christian, while he sheds Christian blood. End of section 41 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California for LibriVox Spring 2008